0: As parents, we always feel like we have to be everything for our children. It's our job to to be the solution to everything. And I think that what they need the most is just someone to be with them as they figure life out. You don't need to be there all the time, but to be there as much as you are able or when you are able, just to be with them and not to have to be everything to them.
1: This is Where You Are, a podcast that helps families promote their mental health and wellness. I'm Bryn Asquith. And I'm Michelle Horn. Last season, for our final episode, we brought questions from BC parents and caregivers to two experts in child and youth mental health at BC Children's Hospital. And to wrap up this season, we wanted to do something similar. After all, parents have no shortage of questions when it comes to their child's mental health and wellness.
2: Today on Where You Are, we share a range of frequently asked questions from parents and caregivers that we often hear at the Kilti Center, including questions on common parenting struggles, like how can I connect with my teen when they won't even talk to me? And how can I support my child through tough situations like the loss of a loved one? And we're really grateful to again have two leading child and youth mental health professionals to dig into these questions with us, Dr. Ashley Miller and Dr. Amrit Darival.
1: Let's listen to that conversation. I'd like to welcome back behind the mic, one of our returning guests to the podcast, Dr. Ashley Miller. Dr. Miller is a child psychiatrist and family therapist at BC Children's Hospital. She's a passionate advocate for family and caregiver involvement in mental health treatment of children and youth, and the co-author of the book, what to say to kids when nothing seems to work, a practical guide for parents and caregivers. So great to have you back on where you are.
3: So nice to be here.
2: Also joining us today is Dr. Amrit Dariwal, a clinician researcher at BC Children's Hospital, where she focuses her time on developing, providing, and evaluating psychological treatments. Her current interests address somatization in children and youth, while her previous work has focused on healthy teen relationships. Great to finally have you joining us on the podcast, Dr. Dariwal. Thanks for having me. So, Dr. Dariwal, we're going to start off with a question for you, and this is a common question that we often get at the Kelty Center. Uh, parents often ask us about how they can really connect with the teen. It seems like sometimes the more they ask questions, the more their teen can just kind of clam up and not want to talk. So how can parents connect with and support their
0: teens when teens sometimes won't even talk to them? Oh, this is so tough. The teen years are such a hard time for, well, for both teens, but also for parents. It can start to feel like your kids are drifting away, and if you're anything like me, it can send you into a bit of a tailspin. I'm kind of the person that wants to know what's in my child's mind at all times. It can kind of feel like, okay, like once you were part of me, and now you're like so separate from me. And you would think that these are actually two totally opposite things. But what's totally paradoxical and totally amazing is that research is showing us time and time again, that the more teens feel you can support their independence, the closer they actually feel to you. So when you sense or like when they sense that they are safe, with you and that they are close with you and that you are their safe haven, they actually feel secure moving away from you. So sometimes, you know, when they're not talking with you, it's not always a bad thing. They might feel safe and secure moving away from you to explore their world independently, knowing you'll be there for them if you need them. So coming back to the issue when your kid clams up, I mean, what a beautiful example of this kind of this paradox of like when your teen, this paradox your teen is confronting all the time at this kind of developmental stage of life. This idea that I'm having a hard time, but I want to see if I can take care of things by myself, or I don't want to need you at this on this one. So one of the most important things that I think a parent can do here is just kind of stand back and see the big picture and recognize, like, what is my child trying to accomplish and just try to salute those efforts. So I might say something like, okay, I can tell something's up for you. And this might have been the situation where I would start to ask questions and offer to help. But right now I see that you need to do something different. And I'm around if you need me. So that the child doesn't feel abandoned and that you're gone now uh, and that you gave up on them, but that they also, that they see that you're respecting their need for space.
2: And Dr. Miller, not sure if there's anything you wanted to add to that. I know you uh, support families in these situations as well, a lot of the time.
3: Yeah. And I have my own teenagers too, at this point. So I really relate to this question and I think uh, doing things together is often the way in the door. And it, it may feel like, oh, I don't want to have to bribe my kid with a trip to get coffee just so we can hang out. But they are motivated to be with their peers, and it's totally fine to engage in a favorite activity of theirs, whether it is a trip to the mall or uh, playing basketball or playing video games. And that's that's really an underutilized one. We often get so frustrated with screens that we just want to throw them out the window, but actually if your child is playing video games or watching videos online, that can be a nice way to enter into their world and connect even when they're a little older.
1: That's such a great reminder, Dr. Miller, of the, you know, positive uses of screens, right? Like they can they can really create moments of connection between families too. I know in our family we sometimes will do Super Mario Brothers together. Uh, you know, and and it's kind of fun. <laughs> Um, Dr. Miller, children and youth can sometimes say some pretty surprising things that we as parents and caregivers may not be ready for. For example, I hate my life or I have no friends or nobody likes me. What should you say when you hear this from your child? Is it normal? At what point should you be concerned? It would be great to get your thoughts.
3: Yeah, it's a great question. And again, I you want to normalize the fact that we all have bad days and we all have negative feelings. I mean, think about how many times do you come home from work or a busy day and think, oh, I just want to quit or that was awful. Um, And we might express that to a good friend or a partner. And for our kids, we're the ones that they have to turn to when they're not happy with things. So for the most part, ideally, you want to just listen and hear them Uh, empathize with their feelings, can say something validating about it. Like, oh man, that sounds like it was a really, really hard day. Or I don't blame you for feeling like you hate your life right now. What happens when we're parents though is we often feel responsible for their unhappiness or like somehow we should be able to change their unhappiness or maybe that they're being ungrateful for this Amazing life we've provided them. And so when they say, I hate my life, it can feel like a personal stab or it can worry us that something is terribly wrong. And then rather than listen to them as we might want our best friend to listen to us, we try to cheer them up or tell them it's not that bad or convince them of another way to think or feel. But then they end up feeling a little bit uh, turned away by what we've said. And There is a line, of course, where if a child is consistently negative or repeatedly saying that, or they say it with the level of emotion where we really read that they are serious and they are not happy. Of course, we we do need to take it seriously. But even that conversation can still start with open listening before moving into problem solving. And we're more likely to hear the important details about it. I think if we approach it from that open place. And if we're human, you know, like most of us really will respond first, potentially by not listening, by trying to cheer them up, by because that's just human nature. But we can always go back to it and say, you know, when you told me before that you hated your life or nobody likes you, and I just said, oh, I'm sure it's not that bad. What I really should have said was, I'm sorry you're feeling that way. And can you tell me more about it? And I think there's always a second chance.
2: Yeah, and I find you're right that it's a natural instinct to wanna cheer up your kid or try to make them feel better. Um, I try to take a breath before I respond to give me a moment to be like, how do I really need to respond in this moment? So I don't automatically go into that, that space of wanting to cheer up or try to make them feel better.
1: You're listening to Where You Are, I'm Bryn Asquith. You can find all the resources in today's episode on our podcast page keltymentalhealth.ca podcast. If you're a parent or caregiver looking for a listening ear, connect with one of our trained parent peer support workers at the Kelty Center by email, phone, or in person. Find those details at keltymentalhealth.ca contact us. Stick around for the next half of our show, where our guests will offer some advice on how to support your child through the loss of a loved one. So another
2: question, Dr. Dariwal, it often comes up in conversations with parents who contact the Kelty Center that sometimes their kids will complain of physical symptoms when the parent is feeling like it might actually be due to them being anxious or stressed out. So for example, their kid is complaining of a tummy ache in the morning, but you know as a parent that, you know, there's something going on at school that they're nervous about and those two things might be linked. But how as a parent can you talk to your
0: kid about that, especially when the kid might not be seeing the link between those two things? So one thing that can sometimes happen, and so one piece of advice that I often um, have at the front of my mind is that sometimes parents worry, my child is trying to get out of something on purpose. And so I avoid really uh, calling kids out on something like that, because sometimes it actually doesn't work that way. And sometimes kids aren't doing it on purpose. Instead, what I think is really helpful is normalizing the mind-body connection by saying something like, okay, wow, you're discovering something about yourself. Your tummy really hurts. And I think your tummy is telling you very, like something very important about how you are feeling. Now, I remember today is a big day. Today is the day of your test. And so really what I'm trying to do is help the child make connections between what is happening in their body and what is happening in their mind. For a long time in our world, we've really separated emotions from bodies. Uh, You know, when we have an illness or an injury, we go to the doctor and we don't talk about emotions. And when we have stress or sadness in our lives, we go to a counselor or therapist and seldom do we talk about these things together. We now know that emotions are biologically relevant phenomena, and they are very motivating things that tell us something very important about our needs and what we need to do in our lives. So something's happening, and we need to do something about it. You are nervous about a test. So Dr. Dariwal,
2: another question we often get from parents is what to do when your child seems to be negative about everything. Um, All their suggestions are met with no, don't want to do that, that's boring. Um, It can be very exhausting. Any tips for parents in these moments?
0: You know, if you're trying to build like a really joyful, happy environment and you know, you kind of sense that your child is sort of, you know, kind of bringing things down, it can be really hard and uh, the parent can feel like they need to sort of bring the uh, energy back up again. Or if, you know, your child it constantly says, like, I don't want to do that or that's boring. And as a parent, you're constantly giving suggestions and they're always saying no, that can feel really deflating too. There's a sign of the times that it's up to the parents to take care of this. And parents can really feel pressured to take on a lot. So they, it seems like they have to do and be everything for their child. So they have to be the disciplinarian, the teacher, the chef, the chauffeur, among many other things. And here it sounds like they have to be the entertainer too. So have to be the one who helps you with boredom and figuring out what to do with your time. But the truth is our brains are experience-dependent organs, right? And children can't learn to manage boredom or distressing experiences unless they actually sit in them and experience them repeatedly. So they need practice tolerating distress and figuring out what to do with those things. Otherwise, they will only have learned that the way to escape distress is I need to go to my mom. My mom will fix it. Or I need to go to my dad. My dad will fix it. Or I need someone to do this for me. I need to escape this situation. So that's one thing that stands out for me.
1: And I can almost hear a bit of a sigh of relief from some of our listeners like, Oh, thank goodness! One less hat that I actually have to wear as a parent. Yeah, um, yeah, and just it's too much. Yeah, absolutely. We we <laughs> yeah. do a lot already. We do a lot of wonderful mm-hmm. things already for for our kids, and our kids sometimes have a lot of uh, talents and strengths, and we just don't always realize. Like, oh, you know what? That's okay. They can just complain and let it be, and and they'll figure something out. Dr. Miller, um, another question that we get. What, what about when your child talks to you in a way that really presses your buttons? So maybe it's, you know, they've said something completely inappropriate or disrespectful, like they swear at you or something like that. It can be really hard in the moment to know how to respond. You know, as a parent, do you focus on the, you know, disrespectful language? Do you acknowledge their feelings and validate what they're going through? Do you set a consequence for being disrespectful? What do you recommend to parents in these moments?
3: I think it really depends on the specific parent and the specific child in each situation. And what's right for one parent may not be right for another, and same for one child and another. And what I mean by that is if you have a child who, let's say, is struggling with physical aggression, and you've decided that that's what you're working on, that's the main no-go, but that you're actually going to tolerate swearing or you're going to tolerate disrespectful behavior because it's just not in that top category. And it also depends on the parent. Everyone has their own limits, and it's important to know yours. So for example, for myself, I don't tolerate swearing, but for another parent, it may not be a big deal. So there's not one blanket answer. I think it's important as a parent to know what is okay for you and what's not. And you'll know that by tuning into yourself how you feel. Then once you've thought about that a bit, what do you want to focus on for your child? What's important to you? Well, it's good to communicate that ahead of time, of course, you know, what the expectations and rules are, but we have, don't always do that. And when it happens, uh, there are different ways to deal with it. So I think when things cross your, your real line, it's important to, to say so, to say, that's not okay for me, or to say, we need to take a break to cool down. I, I won't talk about this until things are calmer you know i love you but i'm gonna go to my room and you can go to yours we'll we'll deal with this later so i think you need to de-escalate by separating sometimes if you have an older kid or teen you can if it's a more minor type of thing and your limit hasn't really been crossed and it's more a child expressing a negative emotion but just the negative emotion of anger then of course you can validate it like man you're so angry don't blame you. I'd be really mad if that happened too. But there's a difference between a kid just swearing, you know, like punctuation mark versus swearing at you. So I, I really believe it's important to set boundaries on what's okay, what's not okay, not to be a punching bag as a parent, to treat yourself with respect, to expect respect from your child, but also to see that some behaviors, for example, eye rolling or a little bit of snarkiness or something like that, it may just be letting off steam because the child doesn't have the power they want in that situation and you can either ignore it or you might even validate their anger.
1: I, I am wondering too, you know, when it, when it is time for that conversation, you know, when everyone's kind of cooled down um, and you want to have a conversation around, you know, kind of setting healthy boundaries or, you know, kind of limits. Can you give some examples of what that could look like for parents and for our listeners?
3: Yeah. So you you could, when when everyone's calm, you can come back to and say, Hey, you know, yesterday when you slammed the door really loudly, like I know you were mad and you have every right to be mad, but it's actually not okay in this house to slam the door like that. What are some other alternatives? And I'm using purposely using a very mild example. I think most of us would probably not even flinch at a slam door, right? But it could, this could go all the way up to, um, punching a hole in the drywall we, we need to talk about okay what led up to that and be curious and open because it's not always a, a one-sided thing we may have a very dysregulated child a child who has multiple mental health or substance use or other behavioral neurodevelopmental conditions but there's it's still a, usually an interaction that leads or maybe not leads to the outburst but fuels the fire so i think as parents and caregivers, we can sort of be humble that we may have a role, but we also don't want to go too far into just taking all the responsibility, blaming ourselves, thinking, oh, if only I didn't do this, I wouldn't have triggered my child, because they need to take some responsibility too. Even little kids need to start taking some responsibility for their actions, especially if they're violating social norms or hurting others. So it's this real combination of everyone makes mistakes. We can all come back from it. Nobody is a bad person here. There's just moments that we lose it. And how can we move forward and work together so that this goes better next time? So now that we've tackled
2: some common parenting struggles and things that can kind of happen on a uh, day-to-day basis, we're just going to shift the conversation a bit and talk about how parents can address some more really really serious or really difficult situations that can come up in families. So Dr. Miller, there will be times in every child's life where they will experience the loss of a loved one or um, a pet or something that's important to them. How can a parent or caregiver support their child through these situations of of grief
3: and loss? This is so important. And really the key I would say here is that grief is a family affair. It's something that is best done together. It's very hard for a, a child or even a teen to go through grief by themselves. And we'll sometimes see kids who are brought for therapy for depression or grief or loss, Uh, but the parent or caregiver hasn't done their, their joint grieving with the child. And that's partly why the child's feeling isolated. And it's so, so difficult. And, you know, it's asking a lot of a grieving caregiver to look at their feelings amidst all the practical details, especially if they've lost someone very close to them but it is so helpful and and necessary for the child. So some of the practical things are just, again, really listening, making space, slowing down, sometimes accepting that regular day-to-day commitments may not be completed at the same level. Although it's good to keep routine, you can't necessarily do the same hectic pace at that time to honor it through rituals that are part of your community, your spiritual community, to be honest and open with kids. Because again, the secrecy around loss is sometimes what fuels um, the anxiety or or problematic uh, bereavement for children and let them participate in the rituals as much as is appropriate. Memories, keepsakes, narratives, talking about the person's stories, sharing the the good moments or the pet, you know, whoever whoever it is, Um, pet losses are are very uh, difficult too. And, uh, and remembering that it, it isn't just processed at one point in time. So kids, as they reach different developmental levels, may reprocess grief and loss or trauma and may need to go through it again. And I think that's why so many uh, wisdom traditions have anniversary rituals, because that's a natural part. And so sometimes we'll see a youth who seems to be suddenly very out of sorts in whatever way, it might be behavioral, mental health, substance, and it's really an anniversary reaction. Um, so just to be attuned to that, to be prepared for it, if you can be as a caregiver, that that would be likely to happen. And seeking connection. So often as families, too, we need connection outside ourselves with others who are also uh, mourning. And in that sense of community can can really support all of us and help kids get through it.
2: Thank you so much, Dr. Miller and Dr. Dariwall, for answering all these questions today. We get them so often through the Kelty Center, and I think you've provided a lot of wisdom and strategies and advice for the parents that are listening today. Were there any final words of wisdom that you wanted to share with our listeners that you wanted to kind of leave them with at the end of the
3: podcast? One question that um, I think comes up a lot is: there's so much parenting advice out there. What really matters? And I think uh, there's a book by Dan Siegel called The Power of Showing Up, and I think that title sort of says it all, that it doesn't have to be fancy. It's, it's just your time and effort, not even all your time, just as much as you can. Being there, trying your best is, is what matters um, the most, and really um, taking care of yourself as best you can through it as a, as a parent or caregiver.
0: Thank you. Dr. Dariwell? Um, Yeah, I would just like to echo what Dr. Miller said. I think that's a beautiful uh, saying, you know, with the power of showing up. I think like the one saying that always sticks with me is um, as parents, we always feel like we have to be everything for our children. It's our job to make them happy, to fix their problems, to solve everything going on, to be the... Uh, to be the solution to everything and I think that what they need the most is just someone to be with them as they figure life out so uh, and like Dr. Miller said you don't need to be there all the time but to be there as much as you are able or when you are able just to be with them and not to have to be everything to them.
1: Thank you both so much, Dr. Miller and Dr. Dyerwald. These takeaways uh, and words of wisdom for our listeners are absolutely phenomenal. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. A big thanks to Michelle for co-hosting this episode. And thank you, as always, to our listeners. Michelle, wild to think that we just wrapped our final episode for season three. I know it was
2: such a great season. We had so many different topics that we got to cover in this season, and I'm really looking forward to um, starting the planning for our next season four.
1: Me too. This episode of Where You Are is brought to you by BC Children's Kelty Mental Health Resource Center. Our show is produced and edited by Emily Morantz, with audio engineering by Sam Sagain. Audio production by Jar Audio. If you enjoyed this episode please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you might be listening now.
2: Are you looking for more great episodes of Where You Are? Find us wherever you listen to podcasts and, of course, at keltymentalhealth.ca slash podcast. We hope you'll make us a go-to resource to promote your family's mental health and wellness from where you are to where you want to be.